Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being with us tonight, and welcome to our program with His Excellency Samer Shukri. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I know tonight that we have lots of our members, but we have also lots of guests, and I hope you will take this opportunity to pick up one of our membership brochures right here, has a calendar, and I think there's one hopefully in every chair, or if not, there'll be one outside, and our staff will be happy to answer any questions you have about membership here at the World Affairs Council. Uh, we've had an extremely busy last few, last few days, in fact. Last week, I think many of you saw the movie Taking Chance, uh, the HBO premiere, and those of you who were there, I'm sure, enjoyed it. We were very fortunate to have Michael Strobel there, who was the uh, escort and the, the screenwriter. Uh, last night, we were with Christopher Dickey, who is the international uh, bureau chief for Newsweek, and uh, he was our speaker talking about securing the city. So these are the type of programs that are put on at the World Affairs Council. Also, want to just to sort of highlight because many of you have heard uh, me or others involved with the council talk about our international education initiative. But not everyone has because we did a survey and some people said we don't know about the international education initiative. So I'm going to take about 45 seconds or so and talk about it. Um, Last Saturday, we had over, oh, about 300 students over at SMU participating in WorldQuest. And WorldQuest is really an academic, like the academic decathlon, where students from, oh, about 70 different, well, there were 70 teams. I don't remember how many schools were involved, but close to, close to probably 60 different schools from all over North Texas. Uh, competed against each other to see who could answer the most questions about flags or treaties or ge geography. Um, and uh, the winning team came from Plano, and that team will be going to uh, Washington in just a few weeks to compete nationally. Your Excellency, you will be invited to that uh, uh, tournament uh, that's put on by the World Affairs Councils of America, and there'll be some 50, 60 teams from all over the United States. And then just yesterday, we had 300 students meeting, again, from all over the region, but meeting in downtown Dallas to participate in a project that we call uh, Operation TAP. And one of our directors, Robert Millman, is the one who has been spearheading this effort. Uh, Operation TAP, has anyone heard of it? Uh, no, one person, yeah, a teacher. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's a really new initiative of UNICEF. Uh, UNICEF recognizes that there is a need to obviously provide better funding for potable water throughout Africa and villages where there's still, you know, close to a billion people in the world who, who can't even get water out of a tap, if not more. And so high school students from all around this region uh, during a week in March, late March, will be going to restaurants. And when you uh, are at the restaurant and they'll say, well, would you like a glass of water? There will also be a note in saying, would you be kind enough to donate a dollar to Operation TAP? Because so many of our students who come to our programs and learn about what's happening in the world and get better awareness about some of the tough ish social issues and economic issues facing, facing the world, they say, well, how can we participate? How can we help? 
and Operation TAP is one way for us to do that. So that's my spiel tonight about the International Education Initiative and something that all of you do, especially those of you who are supporters of the Contributor Circle, make programs like this possible. Turning to tonight's program, I want to particularly thank our good friend Lockheed Martin Corporation and IPR group of companies. Both of these companies repeatedly take my calls and were very kind to generously support, support tonight's program. And I'd like to recognize uh, our good friend Sam DeBoos from the IPR company. Sam, will you stand so everybody can thank you? <laughs> and from Lockheed, we have Glenn Miller, Jeff Freeman, and J.R. Wildridge. If, gentlemen, if you would please stand and be recognized. <laughs> And tonight we're at the Rosewood Crescent Hotel, and as most of you know, they are a key supporter of the World Affairs Council, and we're very grateful always for them. Tonight's event is co-sponsored with the bilateral U.S. Arab Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the executive director wishes she could be here, but she had to stay in that city, humid city down in the south, Houston. But we always are pleased to work with the bilateral U.S. Arab Chamber, and tonight's program is also sponsored and supported by the city of Dallas. Uh, what's going on at the Dallas Museum of Art? Anybody know? <laughs> Good. Has everybody been? How many people have been? Well, that's, well, all right. Well, then, well, still some that can go. If you've not yet had a chance, I need to recognize that the Dallas Museum of Art also is promoting this tonight, and they have very kindly donated two sets of four VIP tickets that may be used any time during the exhibit. So now how am I going to give these tickets out? Who joined the council tonight? Spotters, check. All righty. Come on up here, sir. You get four tickets to King Tut. <laughs> All right. Now let me see. What's my other? Who is having a birthday tonight and decided to come here instead of having a birthday party somewhere else? Who's having a birthday this week? Who's having a birthday next week? Um, <laughs> who's having a birthday in two weeks? <laughs> All righty. What's my favorite country? What's my second favorite country? <laughs> All right. Ladies and gentlemen, it really is a, a pleasure to introduce the Egyptian ambassador tonight. Uh, the World Affairs Council has had a strong relationship with essentially all Egyptian ambassadors, and uh, you can talk to American diplomats. Ambassador Oberwetter is here, and they will tell you that the Egyptian foreign ministry is really one of the top in the world. Uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing many of the Egyptian ambassadors, um, from Ashraf Gorbal, we were talking about him earlier, to His Excellency Ahmed Maher, who was foreign minister, Nabil Fami, uh, and now we have Ambassador Shukri. The Egyptian ambassadors don't come for a year, two years, or three years. They tend to stay for a very long time. And so we know that this will not be the last visit, and we hope that it will come as often as you want to come here, sir. And we were pleased that for one of your first trips outside of Washington that you decided to come here. We're also very pleased that your wife joined us tonight. And if I could ask you to stand, Mrs. Madame Shukri. The ambassador was appointed, appointed to his position just really a few months ago in September of 2008, and he came at a very interesting time, of course. He has served previously as permanent, Egypt's permanent representative to the United Nations in Geneva, also ambassador to Austria, and he had served um, at the mission to the international organizations in Vienna. 
He's had several positions with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and he's been posted in wonderful places such as London and Buenos Aires, and of course uh, with the permanent mission in New York. It is indeed a great honor for us to have you here with us, sir. His Excellency, Ambassador Shukwit. Thank you very much for this introduction. Uh, it's very kind of you, and I certainly will be visiting uh, Dallas much more often. Uh, I'm heartened by the turnout, and uh, I hope uh, when I finish, uh, most of you will still be here. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to address the World Affairs Council uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth during my first visit to Texas. I would like to thank the organizers and sponsors of this event for their interest and involvement, and to thank you all for taking the time and showing the interest to be here with us. As some of you might uh, know, I have been Egypt's ambassador and was just mentioned uh, for a relatively short time. I arrived in September of last year, and I'm keen even at this early stage to, uh, of my tenure not to remain confined to Washington and the often consuming politics and dynamics of the Beltway and to extend out uh, and reach uh, around the states to people like yourselves who have uh, both an interest in international relations and the ability to shape American approach to the world. I will share with you tonight an Egyptian perspective of uh, the most immediate challenges facing the Middle East, a region that remains greatly important for the United States' interests and security. Whether you are discussing securing energy sources, fighting terrorism, or building bridges with the Islamic world, the Middle East will figure highly on the agenda. The United States engagement is crucial to successfully addressing many of these challenges and Egypt's regional role renders it imperative for both our countries to continue to work together towards this end. The Middle East more than any other region in the world today is facing enormous and dangerous challenges. While some of these challenges are the result of long and historic unresolved conflicts, Others are the product of more recent developments. In both cases, if left unresolved, these challenges have the potential of creating havoc and threatening the stability and security not only of our region, but of the world at large, as some have already done over the last few years. One could argue, and rightly so, that the Middle East has always suffered from armed conflicts and crises. However, two new elements render the current challenges in the region more threatening than ever before and call for a more serious and urgent effort to address them. First, the current challenges have increasingly become interconnected and intertwined in an unprecedented man manner. Recent developments in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Gaza were clear manifestations of a wider conflict among a number of regional and international actors and their conflicting interests. That is not to say that these conflicts were simple to start with, but the daunting challenges of resolving them has become even more complicated today. The second is globalization and the interdependence as well as the huge leaps in information technology and telecommunications, which, is, which makes it more likely that the challenges facing the Middle East will have a direct impact around the world the price of gas is one example of how the region's conflicts can have a direct impact on the daily life of people in the most remote areas of the world. This makes it more urgent and necessary for the international community to come together 
in an effort to resolve the region's challenges. In my, in my remarks tonight, I will focus on those challenges facing the Middle East that have a wide-range impact on the threat to the region and beyond. I will address primarily the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in view of its centrality. I am sure our discussion in the question and answer section will be an ample opportunity to further elaborate on these and other issues that you might find interesting and pertinent. I cannot emphasize enough that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict remains the most pressing challenge in the Middle East. Resolving this conflict permanently and comprehensively and establishing a contiguous and viable sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza would first and foremost put an end to more than six decades of Palestinian sufferings and displacement and contribute significantly to the security of Israel and the security and stability of the Middle East and the world in general. Equally important, in my opinion, is how this conflict has shaped and continues to shape the perceptions of Middle Easterners towards the West and, in particular, towards the United States. Arabs and Muslims have felt for a very long time the injustice of the policy of double standards when it comes to this particular conflict. These widely shared feelings of injustice and hopelessness are exploited by extremists keen on expanding the rift between the Islamic world and the West. Resolving the conflict would fundamentally change the region's psychological mindset towards the West, a goal that would enhance global harmony. Over the last 30 years, Egypt has exerted great efforts, over, often in collaboration with the United States, to help both parties find the path to ending the conflict and achieving peace. This joint Egyptian-American effort is indeed today more than ever needed. We believe there is only one path to peace, and that is negotiations that ultimately lead to the two-state solution. Israel and Palestine living side by side. But this formula will not be available to grasp for much longer. The international, the international policies of subsequent Israeli governments to change the facts on the ground through settlement expansion and demographic patterns threatens the tenant of this solution. To achieve an end to the conflict, both Israelis and Palestinians will have to make hard compromises on the core issues of a final settlement namely territory, security, Jerusalem, and the issue of the Palestinian refugees. What is encouraging is the fact that after years of peace talks and many rounds of negotiations since the Oslo agreements were signed in 93, the general contours of such a final settlement have become widely recognized. On this occasion, more than on any other, I think the term, we don't have to really reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of hard work that has gone in, whether through official channels, whether through unofficial channels, directly between Palestinians and Israelis, people who have shown moderation and who have shown the ability to uh, positively work together, have, I think, put in place a very uh, solid foundation for us to proceed. And uh, those tenants can be outlined in the border, that the border of Palestinian state will be that of June 1967 uh, division line between Israel and the West Bank and, and Gaza, with necessarily minor land uh, swaps to take into consideration uh, 
facts on the ground uh, that uh, I think both sides have recognized is a necessary component. Uh, the second is that uh, certain arrangements will have to be made on the Palestinian side to accommodate uh, Israel's security concerns and provide the level of uh, comfort and confidence that uh, Israel and the Israeli people will need to uh, embark upon the courageous uh, step towards peace. Uh, thirdly, uh, Jerusalem will become the capital of both states. And finally, there has to be a just settlement to the plight of the Palestinian refugees. And there are existing many formulations that can be an acceptable basis, I think, to both sides in how this issue should be handled. What is lacking to do today, though, is the political will, and particularly that of Israel, to achieve such an agreement. Thereby, the roles of both the United States and Egypt cannot be overemphasized here. If left to negotiating peace on their own, the two parties will be unable to resolve the deep impediments to peace. Only the United States can play the role of a catalyst and broker to help both parties, particularly Israel, make the hard decisions needed to end the conflict once and for all. We are starting to witness early signals of determination from the new American administration to effectively undertake this responsibility. We were greatly encouraged by President Obama's forceful recommitment to the peace process and to the two-state solution and the unprecedented step of appointing a special envoy to the Middle East in his first week in office, especially someone of Senator Mitchell's stature and experience. The Middle East and the peace process was almost the only issue uh, in uh, international affairs which the President incorporated into his State of the Union address. And this again is a fact that has been recognized in the region and is a cause of optimism. The greatest threat to peace right now is Israel's settlement expansion. How can Palestinians believe that Israel is sincere in trying to end the conflict and establish a Palestinian state through negotiations when it is systematically extending settlements and territories that should comprise the land of their long-promised state? Although these negotiations should remain directly between both the Israelis and the Palestinians, the Arab Peace Initiative provides a regional incentive for Israel to, sh to reach a final agreement. Adopted by all Arab states for the first time in 2002 at the summit level and renewed in 2007 again by heads of state, the initiative provides a regional framework for the closure of the conflict a conclusive closure. It is not in itself a peace agreement, and it does not attempt to impose on Israel any conditions or outcomes for the negotiations. Rather, it promises that once these negotiations yield a final settlement accepted by both parties to the conflict, all 22 Arab states will recognize Israel, establish diplomatic relations, and work towards ensuring security for all the peoples of the Middle East. The recent Israeli attacks on Gaza are a matter of great concern. While we do not condone launching rockets into Israel from Gaza and have condemned such activity, by the same token we condemn these improportionate attacks and inhumane attacks that Israel has embarked upon 
resulting in enormous casualties among Palestinians. Wide-scale destruction of civilian targets and further deterioration of the dire living conditions in Gaza were the result of an active policy of targeting civilian uh, parts of the uh, occupied territory. But because Egypt realizes how dangerous our region is, we did not allow our frustration with these attacks to stand in the face of exerting more efforts to try once again to stop the violence and to prevent the, to prevent the blo bloodshed. Immediately after the start of these attacks, Egypt launched an initiative to bring the fighting to a cessation and to allow humanitarian assistance into Gaza. Working extensively with both parties, Egypt's mediation yielded the desired objectives and we Im immediately intensified our efforts to consolidate the ceasefire and allow reopening of the crossings into Gaza to ensure the desperately needed uh, materials uh, necessary for the lives of the Palestinian people. Our efforts were very close a few days ago to reach an agreement to stabilize the ceasefire and institutionalize it for a longer duration than the last lull in, in hostilities between the two sides, except for a last-minute change of heart on the Israeli side. Israel's decision to make the release of its captured soldier a condition to allow the reopening of the crossings and to stabilize the ceasefire, though these two issues, that of the soldier and the uh, status of the conflict in Gaza and the crossings were being dealt with simultaneously and through the good and faithful offices of the Egyptian government. Egypt is also working intensively to achieve reconciliation between all Palestinian factions, including Fatah and Hamas, in order to form a Palestinian government that will be acceptable to the international community, oversee the reconstruction of Gaza, and prepare for presidential and legislative uh, elections by the Palestinians. The opening sessions of that reconciliation was held today in Cairo, and I'm uh, glad to report all Palestinian factions did attend and did indicate uh, a resolution towards solidarity and reconciliation, and we look forward to continuing to uh, provide the assistance to them in their uh, negotiations and the various committees that they will address their issues through uh, and hopefully regain uh, a unified Palestinian negotiating body to uh, once again embark on the peace process. In addition, Egypt is uh, hosting an international conference next Monday to provide support to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and provide urgently needed humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians. This conference is also viewed as an opportunity for the international community to demonstrate to the Palestinian people uh, their international community's resolve to deal with their issues from a humanitarian as well as from a political perspective. Through all of these efforts, Egypt continues to play a leading role in attempts to bring peace and security to the Middle East. We have started on this road more than 30 years ago, achieved momentous accomplishments, and suffered, unfortunately, many setbacks, but are determined to continue till the objectives we were set 
to achieve are fully realized. We believe that the United States has a responsibility and interest in achieving these same goals. And as always, we stand ready to engage fully with our friends in Washington in this effort. We believe that the cause is a valuable one and one that we should continue to pursue and that the opportunities which exist today are there is a real opportunity to be taken advantage of and we should not squander this opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, before I conclude, let me quickly touch upon another challenging challenge which is facing the Middle East, and that is regional security and non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Egypt has been working aggressively since 1974 to free the region from all nuclear weapons and has launched an initiative in 1990 to establish a zone free of weapons, of all weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. A goal that we hope the international community will weigh in to make it a reality in the interest of peace and security in the region. We have also emphasized that any regional security arrangements should be inclusive with the participation of all regional players. In this context, Iran's regional ambitions are causing a considerable level of concern and anxiety throughout the region. These ambitions were reflected only recently when an Iranian statement claimed that the Kingdom of Bahrain is an, Ira is an Iranian territory. We strongly reject Iran's disturbing desire to extend its influence into the region of the Arab world, including any attempts to acquire nuclear military capabilities. But while reiterating this position, we believe that addressing the challenge posed by Iran has to be through dialogue and diplomatic efforts. The consequences of any other al alternative are highly dangerous and threaten to create unprecedented levels of chaos and destruction in the region, as well as economic instability in the world. This dialogue should be inclusive and should not be tempted to jeopardize uh, the interest of any regional player for the sake of reaching a deal with Iran. No country in the region wants to see Iran acquiring nuclear military capabilities, but at the same time it is unacceptable to deprive any country from its rights as stipulated in the Non-Proliferation Treaty, particularly if this country has accepted the commitments of the treaty and joined the rest of the international community in acceding to it and abiding by its rules. Dealing with the Iranian nuclear program provides the international community, and in particular the United States, anew with an opportunity to help reshape the views of Middle Easterners towards the Western countries in the region, having long complained of and warned against Israel's nuclear capabilities, particularly that Israel, along with two other countries only in the world, remain outside the non-proliferation treaty regime and its nuclear facilities remain beyond the scope of the inspection uh, of the IAEA. Let me be quite clear. We do not want any country in the Middle East to acquire, or in the world for that fact, to acquire nuclear military capa capabilities. And we do not want any country in the region to remain outside the NPT. But the international community should not apply double standards in dealing with similar grave concerns. Ladies and gentlemen, let me conclude by addressing the role of both Egypt and the United States in dealing with these and other Middle Eastern challenges. Undoubtedly, developments in the region 
have had their impact on the role of both countries. The United States is not accustomed to dealing with the new range of actors that has emerged in the region, particularly the non-state actors. Similarly, Egypt, which used to be the only player in the region, finds itself among a number of regional and sub-regional players. However, although the role of both countries has undergone changes due to these developments, they remain, and I emphasize will probably for the foreseeable future remain, the most effective players when it comes to the region's challenges and conflicts. The importance of the American-Egyptian collaboration and its value to the interests of both countries is beyond any doubt. And we are committed to continuing on in strengthening this relationship and strengthening the, this alliance on the basis of mutual interest and mutual respect and a friendship that binds us now for over three decades. I thank you very much. Thanks to Haynes and Boone, we'll be podcasting tonight's presentation. And so Emily will be carrying the microphone. And if you will please wait until you have the microphone in hand to ask your question. And if I could see you just a show of a hand so we can keep it moving. Great. Thank you, Ambassador. Um, would you please clarify Egyptians' position with regard to two issues? One, Hamas um, using civilians and little children in mo and launching rockets from mosques and schools. And two, what is uh, uh, the Egyptian position regarding the smuggling of arms that is taking place from the Egyptian side through Philadelphia into the Gaza? Uh, thank you. For, well, I, I think your first statement was rather broad and general, and I have no nothing to to uh, to uh, lead me to conclude uh, or to verify that this is uh, accurate. Uh, but in principle, anyone who uses uh, civilians as uh, a shield or or uh, puts civilians in harm's way is certainly uh, to be condemned. But uh, I think one has to be very careful in presenting accusations and must do so only if they are verifiable and accurate. Unfortunately, the situation in Gaza was somewhat precarious in that uh, uh, the media was not allowed in. Uh, there were some cameras, uh, Palestinian cameras, Al Jazeera cameras, that were inside and that were uh, conveying pictures of what was happening in Gaza. But the international media was disallowed to have been a, a witness and a participant, uh, an impartial one. It was allowed by the Israeli government. And uh, despite that there was an indication of that, I don't think there was a resolute opposition and objection on grounds of freedom of the news media to to report, to inform. Uh, correspondents were very happily willing to stand by at the border of Gaza and, and transmit images uh, which were really not reflective of what was occurring. So again, uh, in principle, any form of shielding behind civilians is condemnable and is uh, uh, something that we totally oppose. 
and we believe that uh, uh, in all conflicts, no matter uh, their uh, uh, size or, or the nature of the conflict, all participants should actively refrain from any form of targeting of civilian, the civilian population, dwellings, hospitals, places of worship, and must avoid uh, the consequences that are associated and the uh, uh, casualties in women, children, uh, and uh, the elderly. Uh, concerning the tunnels, I, th I think this is again uh, an issue that I'm happy that you raise because it gives me an opportunity, an opportunity to clarify. I, I think there is something of a misperception uh, in terms of uh, there is a problem related to smuggling of arms into uh, Gaza. Uh, but I think we have to, to differentiate, and I think the common perception in some of the news media reports has been to focus primarily on the issue of the tunnels and to uh, consider it as the only avenue for smuggling. Uh, and that is not the case. Uh, the, the tunnels proliferated in this area due to a, an economic necessity, primarily. It, it became a very thriving business for people in Gaza, for some uh, Bedouins in Egypt, uh, as a source of uh, providing commercial materials to Gaza, which has been uh, under bl Israeli blockade for a year and a half. Uh, the only way for them to get uh, the, the uh, necessities, uh, the commercial necessities, was through, through this proliferation of the tunnels. And it, it surprises me that sometimes I was asked uh, by a very... Uh, a knowledgeable person, well, how many, how many uh, uh, trucks can go through a tunnel? Yeah. These are, these are holes in the ground that, that are dug, dug vertically three or four uh, meters and then uh, for people to crawl through. Uh, but certainly they have proliferated and they have, uh, have given recourse to some who have utilized them to transmit maybe some light armaments. Uh, but all our indications are that the main... Uh, smuggling routes of arms ha has remained to be the sea and the Najaf desert itself. Uh, arms dealers are quite ingenious and find uh, many uh, means. Uh, it's not an easy problem. It's not an easy sh issue to handle. Uh, the Israeli uh, government, with its uh, reliance on its uh, naval fleet, has not been able to, to uh, stem the smuggling from the sea over the last 30 years. Uh, but certainly, we on our side are doing everything possible. We have uh, allocated uh, parts of our uh, military assistance program with the United States to address this issue. We have uh, undergone a very rigorous and successful training program with the U.S. Corps of Engineers. We have uh, asked for the expedition of, of uh, new technologies uh, from the United States uh, uh, much before the anticipated arrival date that the Pentagon had specified so that we could actively deal with this issue. Upon receiving the equipment, we put them into service immediately and were able to discover 13 tunnels. Uh, so there's no lacking in, in terms of our commitment to dealing with this issue and to cooperating with, this, uh, with, uh, with our allies uh, for this, because this is a matter that only does not affect the status in Gaza, but also has its direct effects on us. We have no desire that Egypt should be a transit or should be a recipient of smuggled arms that might be used to destabilize our uh, internal situation, to be used by radicals, 
to be used uh, in, in explosions like the one that unfortunately occurred quite recently in, in Cairo. So on all fronts, we are totally uh, opposed to, uh, to any form of smuggling, but I hope it will also be recognized that this is a, uh, a burden that falls not only on us, it is not only primarily through the, the tunnels uh, in the Gaza and Egyptian borders, but much more uh, uh, volume is going through other channels, and those channels have to be, and those gaps have to be plugged. Your Excellency, I, I, uh, I'm very ignorant in this area, and I was hoping you might be able to clarify it when uh, one of the different obstacles to peace between the Palestinians and, and Israel. Uh, one of them is to have the two states, and I, I, one of the closest we ever got to an agreement was uh, when Clinton tried to uh, put together an agreement there, and at some point I'd seen a book that had a map of the West Bank uh, uh, of supposedly how it was going to be at the end of the day, and it looked like Swiss cheese. It, it, instead, of it, instead of it being all a, a contiguous Palestinian uh, landhold, uh, there were all these holes in it where these settlements were, you know, and, and, and uh, so I was a bit confused about the dream here. If I was a Palestinian on the one hand, I would want to have a contiguous state. If I was uh, 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 an Israeli, it's going to be extremely difficult to get these men and women that have gone over and settled this area to pull them up and say, hey, you've got to come back over here. And, and uh, is the dream that, uh, that, that the Palestinians would have a contiguous state without this Swiss cheese thing, or is, it, is the dream that it would actually uh, have all these holes where, where settlements were still established there? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused there. Well, th th this is certainly a dilemma and one of the uh, stickiest points in terms of, uh, of the settlement. But uh, uh, it, it raises a, a problem. And I think recognizably uh, over the last 20, 25 years, uh, uh, subsequent Israeli governments have all advocated a policy of expansioning the settlement activity. And uh, it has created a problem. Uh, but necessarily a, a condition that has been created uh, intentionally, uh, the, the burden of resolving should not be placed on other than who established it to begin with. Uh, I think the international community, the United States, Western Europe, everybody in terms of applying the concept of the two-state solution has always done so within the context that the Palestinian state should be a viable, contiguous state uh, for the Palestinians. And that remains, I think, the condition uh, for the creation of the state. How the issue of the settlements will be resolved, uh, I think we still have an opportunity. And this is why it is so fundamentally important that we uh, build upon the current momentum and we do address this issues and try to arrive at a settlement today before maybe in a, a year or two with further settlement expansion, with further erection of the dividing wall and how it, uh, it winds and, and snakes through Palestinian villages and divides uh, Palestinian agricultural land, uh, it becomes an, uh, really, as you mentioned, an impossibility to, to create any uh, reasonable uh, mass of land for the Palestinians to consider a homeland. Uh, but again, there have been practical uh, proposals made uh, and both sides recognize that uh, there will have to necessarily be some uh, swaps of land to uh, compensate and accommodate uh, certain Israeli settlement activity that uh, was in interjected into the West Bank. Uh, the 
degree of, of and the proportion of that swap is still not resolved. Uh, we're speaking about a minute difference between what is recognized as a Palestinian position of 3% and what has been called for by the Israelis of a 5%. So, but in the final context, it's not the, the, the intricacies. It's not the, the technicalities. The technicalities, there will always be very uh, in innovative and, and imaginative people to come up with solutions. But it is the fundamental will to uh, create conditions of peace, to settle this dispute. And like I mentioned, we do not need to reinvent the wheel. The elements are all there, recognizable to all. A lot has been achieved in the Clinton years, and, and his efforts have, are still recognized as having been important ones. Uh, subsequent efforts, both in the, uh, on the official side and also by Israelis and Palestinians, without any official title, who have gotten together in Geneva and in other places to discuss these issues, to try to solve the intricacies, the, 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 the technical dilemmas. And, and they've shown a, a resolve and, and a resilience and a capability to uh, finding compromise solutions. But do we want peace? And that is, I think, the t it is now the time to answer that fundamental question. Uh, what is the position of Egypt toward using um, illegal weapons like white phosphorus and destroying the infrastructure and targeting civilians? I, I think I've sufficiently responded to that question. We are uh, we condemn totally uh, the uh, use of uh, of uh, uh, illegal weaponry. Uh, there are codes of conduct. Uh, there international law governs uh, the law of war. And uh, the international community has uh, developed over the, the centuries sufficiently. We are, in, we are living in the 21st century. We, we actually should avoid all forms of conflict. Uh, I think we have developed sufficiently not to, to be at this stage of our, our, our common development to be really addressing this. But certainly any use of, of prohibited weaponry is condemnable. Any uh, targeting of civilians by anyone towards anyone is, is to be condemned, and, and, and it's a, uh, a, a reproachable offense. And any perpetrator of such, such activity should be brought to justice. Uh, it is uh, only reasonable that uh, uh, consequences uh, of actions should, uh, should uh, result. Thank you, Ambassador, for being here tonight. You called out Israeli settlement policy as an obstacle to peace. Um, I believe that although they are problematic, Israel has shown, as with Egypt, when there is a willing partner for peace, that Israel is ready to take its settlements and move them to help achieve that peace. You have not, however, called out Hamas as an obstacle to peace. And just earlier, you said that will was one of the most important factors. And I think we all know that Hamas is committed to Israel's destruction and continues to use terror and throw rockets into Israel on a daily basis. I would like for you to please comment on Hamas's role as an obstacle. Thank you. Well, I think we were as unequivocal in terms of indicating our uh, displeasure and our uh, rejection of Hamas's activity in terms of targeting uh, the south of Israel, in terms of targeting civilians, served in terms of creating 
a, uh, an unstable situation in terms of review, refusing to uh, engage with us positively to extend the, the six-month ceasefire so as to have avoided the consequences of the, the, uh, the what befell the Palestinian people. Uh, but we also recognize that Hamas does not represent the almost three million Palestinians who are living under occupation. Hamas is only one faction out of the Palestinian uh, political arena, and uh, its actions, when they are disruptive to the peace process, when they are disruptive to the to the pursuit of peace, are are uh, drawn uh, attention is drawn to them, and we do not encourage, and we we uh, very clearly indicate that we do not support such uh, such uh, activities, such policies on their part. Uh, but I think we still have to address the fundamentals of, of the issue and not any particular aspect. Because why is, has Hamas become, uh, or, or, or wh why is Hamas in the state that it is in? And why did this rupture uh, occur between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, which was uh, in place? And, and again, these are all consequences of that the Palestinian people have not seen a light at the end of the tunnel, and thereby they have succumbed to, to, the, uh, to the attraction of the radical, to, to the, 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 the rallying call of, of uh, resistance, resistance that, uh, that is drawn from the history of the United States and resisting the, uh, the British and, and, and achieving their freedom. So again, it is always, I think, more helpful to, to address the fundamental problem, but at the same time, practically, we do have to contend with, with all forms of radicalization in the region, whether it be Hamas, whether it be any other of the more radical factions. But we also have to, to, to address uh, issues and, and promote moderation and promote understanding. And we can only do that by results. We can't do that ex if we can't show any results for, for, for being moderate, if we can't show any results for, for advocating a reasonable policy, then uh, we fall into the trap of, of further radicalizing people and, and uh, hopeless people re revert to uh, hopeless actions. The world owes you a debt for the service to your country and to your country's role in this uh, very difficult process and that to uh, all nations that are contributing to peace. So first I want to thank you for that. Uh, secondly, uh, I know the burden of this is, uh, is great on your country and I know that you have your own needs, uh, finding uh, jobs for your highly educated uh, uh, workforce and uh, economic needs in your country. So my, my question is simply, uh, is the strain of this uh, so hard on Egypt that uh, you're having a difficult time meeting your own needs? Well, most certainly, I think the, the we seek peace uh, as a principle, uh, but we also seek peace for practical purposes. I think uh, our region, uh, Egypt in itself, has been hindered over the last uh, 60 years by this conflict uh, in a direct manner in terms of our uh, associations are going to war and and uh, having to, to, 
to go through the burdens. And also after we had arrived at peace in terms of being able to contend with the constant aggravation and uh, the constant disruption to uh, the region, which has definitely had a very adverse impact on our developmental uh, objectives uh, and our potential to to advance our economy, to uh, provide the jobs for our people. So uh, we, we envisage, and this is why we are so committed to peace, we, we envisage uh, a region uh, living in normalcy of, of uh, open borders for trade, of, uh, of interdependence, and, and all of this can only uh, help us in meeting the needs of our people. And, and we need to create 750,000 jobs per annum to a growing population, and that is not easy when there are so many distractions uh, and we, uh, we give so much time in our foreign policy rather than in developing trade but in uh, putting out the fires. Uh, so definitely it's, it's had its uh, very negative impact uh, and we uh, are equally committed to, to the peace process so that not only Egypt, Egypt, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, everyone in the region might uh, flourish in, in, uh, in uh, in a more peaceful environment. Uh, this is even more exasperated today by the economic crisis. Uh, so we have to contend with that and the economic crisis uh, to boot. Uh, and imagine the resources that have been squandered on both sides in terms of today for the reconstruction of Gaza, almost 30% of residential dwellings have been destroyed in Gaza. They're going to be paid for, but they're going to be paid for out of the donor community whose resources are increasingly becoming more and more limited rather than those donors uh, contributing towards developing world's needs, towards uh, poverty alleviation in Egypt and in, in Africa, in providing better health care and, and uh, better resources, better educations for the children of the future. They are once again having to, to pour in money to rebuild Gaza for maybe the third time. So uh, this, uh, this, I think, again, is a very practical uh, example of how uh, the status has adversely affected uh, the economic potential of the region. I'd like to commend uh, uh, Egypt for being constructive in the last several months, uh, uh, particularly with the Gaza situation. Uh, however, uh, I'm a little, I want you to comment further on what would you do? I mean, uh, for inter for Egypt accepting Israel in what '78, they removed what 12 or 16,000 settlers uh, from territory that Egypt gave to Egypt back to Egypt. In the Gaza, they removed completely, and they removed their settlers from there. And they got 10,000 rockets. What would you do to stop the rockets? And soon as uh, Israel Israel moved out of the Gaza, then Hamas came in, and I'm, I would think the same thing would happen on the West Bank, too, if, uh, if Israel pulled out and Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. They won't even give up one prisoner who's a private for uh, uh, how to pry it. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Well, the, the short answer, how do I stop the rocket, I make peace. If I make peace, there will be no necessity to, to launch any further rockets or for Israel to launch, launch any more campaigns. So I think fundamentally making peace is the only real absolute way to, to avoid the conflict. But let, let us get back to, to 
I'm not quite sure whether the figures are right in terms of the, the amount of settlements that were in Sinai, which were withdrawn. And of course, there's a difficulty in the comparison between Sinai and the West Bank because of the historic nature of, of, uh, of the two areas. Uh, the amounts of, uh, of settle settlement activity, of course, in the Sinai, even if we do take the 12 to 16,000, it comes, it pales in comparison to almost closing on uh, 350,000 settle settlement activities and, and settlement activities that are being uh, installed in a very strategic manner. Uh, again, how, how, do we, how do we stop? How do we ascertain? We, we can only ascertain by, by goodwill and intentions. Uh, I think in the Palestinian Authority and in the majority of the Palestinians, even those who have maybe at this time supported Hamas, they aspire for freedom, and they are willing to make sacrifices for that freedom. And that sacrifice is that they have, they have agreed to relinquish their, what they at one time perceived as their historic right to the whole land of Israel, to the whole land of what is historically Palestine. And they have embraced the concept of a two-state solution for the possibility that they can live in peace without roadblocks, without barriers, without uh, uh, being dictated to or their lives being controlled by what is perceived as a foreign occupation, what is a foreign occupation. So I really, I think we can only rely on creating a state of, again, normalcy. And that in itself, I don't think there is any inherent desire by a Palestinian. I think every Palestinian shares the same values that every Israeli, that everyone sitting in this room shares as a human being in terms of what he aspires to. He aspires to his personal well-being, his prosperity, that of his children and his grandchildren, and being able to have a, a dwelling, a health care, and, and to live his life in a fruitful fashion. So. If we can create that normalcy, then why should we perceive that there should be any further uh, threat, any further ambitions to, to disrupt or to destruct the other? If we can perceive the other as uh, a neighbor, a friend, and a brother, then we, we have diffused the, the state of violence that exists. The state of violence is a, it, it's a vicious circle. It is a, it is, it is a, a mechanism uh, related to an occupation. I think it is a well-held well held and, and recognized international right of people occupation to resist that occupation. So remove the occupation, and then if there is continual violence, you will find everyone, Egypt at the forefront, intervening to, to apprehend and to restrict and to... to, uh, to protect those who are... Uh, no, I'm sorry, there is. Israel still controls the borders of Gaza. It controls the livelihoods by that control of the borders of Gaza. It controls the airspace of Gaza. It controls the, international, the, the, uh, the waters, the three-mile waters of Gaza. Occupation exists, although there is no necessarily physical presence, but interna under international law, and under the physical state, this is a large confinement of the population of 1.5 million. So there is no 
physical presence by virtue of a, a, a withdrawal, but certainly Gaza is controlled by the occupation which Israel still has in force. When, when we have a normal situation of the establishment of a state where these borders are open, when they are under the control of both sides uh, uh, within uh, defined legal regulations, when there is uh, a, a written document that says that there is a Palestinian state, that state will be subject to the same international uh, guidelines, the same international practices that govern every state, that governs Egypt, that governs the United States, in that it must respect the sovereignty of its neighbors, it must not act in a belligerent manner, it must not, and if it does so, it will fall under the the uh, the uh, uh, responsibility to to ask for the to to answer for those. Uh, those uh, activities to the Security Council, to the international community, and I can assure you that Egypt would not allow that, did, did not allow aggression of, of uh, Iraq, a, a brotherly Muslim country, towards Kuwait, uh, where, where we went and forged an alliance with the United States and sent our, our uh, forces to uh, fight side by side with those of the United States to quell the expansionist ambitions of the Iraqis. So let us deal within the recognized norms of international affairs, and I think peace will prevail and a sense of normalcy, a sense of, of coexistence will certainly change the whole dynamics of this. It's, it's difficult to imagine, but if we don't have the, the vision and if we don't break the cycle, the vicious cycle, then we will, I think, find ourselves in a much more difficult situation in a year and an impossible situation in 10 years. Thank you very much. Our mayor, the, the mayor of Dallas, Tom Leppard, as you know, wished he could be here tonight, but he asked us, and he wrote a note in here, that he knows he'll see you next time you, you come to town. You, Dallas, where dreams come true. We are so glad that you came tonight. We thank you for your insightful and, and very frank comments. Also want to recognize that we have students here from Brookhaven and the Brighter Horizon Academy. Thank you, students, for being here. And I see Jim Oberwetter in the audience, as I mentioned earlier. On March 17th, some people go to a bar, but most people, what they should do on St. Patty's Day is come to the World Affairs Council, Dallas Regional Chamber, co-sponsorship of the Ambassador of the EU, Ambassador Bruton, will be co-sponsoring that together. So I hope to see you at that program. And thanks again for being with us, and thank you, sir. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.